You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from three passages. First one is Matthew 12, 15 to 37. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you, who are evil, say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. And then our second passage is from Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss 
they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. And then we turn to the last passage that we will read, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The text for this morning's sermon is Psalm 51, verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. The sermon is entitled, God's Warning Concerning the Removal of His Holy Spirit. And it was prepared by the Reverend Lump of Edmonton. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, have you ever wondered whether or not you have sinned against the Holy Spirit so much that as a result you are now uncertain about your salvation? Do you think that you are too sinful a person to be saved? You go to church and try to do your best, but deep down in your heart, you know that there is something seriously wrong with you. You feel like a fraud. You can see that God would save others, but not you. Other people have a stronger faith and are more godly. They are more deserving, but you can't imagine that God would accept you in your present state. You're not sure about your your salvation. It nags at you. 
You may have the same questions about one or more of your loved ones as well about a child who has gone astray and no longer comes to church or about a close relative or friend. Because they don't even go to church anymore, your concern for them may go even deeper. Has such a person sinned the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit? What about those who have been excommunicated? Can they ever be saved again? Have they sinned the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit? In the text, we see the struggle of David. It's a well-known psalm. It is about David's confession of sin, the confession of his horrible sin against Bathsheba. Even though David makes his beautiful confession to the Lord, David struggles as well. He is afraid that God is going to take his Holy Spirit away from him. So he pleads with God not to do that. David does not find himself in the same situation as us today. Today we live after Pentecost, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Could an Old Testament believer sin against the Holy Spirit in the same way as a New Testament believer? Did they have the fullness of the Holy Spirit then? Does the Holy Spirit work differently in the Old Testament than in the New Testament? There are many questions that need to be answered. One thing we can state right off the bat, we all need God's Holy Spirit. Without God's Holy Spirit, we are doomed. That is true for the Old Testament believer as well as for the New Testament believer. As a matter of fact, without God's Holy Spirit, this whole world would be doomed. That is why God warns us. That is also what today's sermon is about. The theme of the sermon is God's warning concerning the removal of his Holy Spirit. We will see that God's Holy Spirit is, one, a gracious gift, two, a precious gift, and three, an eternal gift. David was keenly aware that he had received the gift of God's Holy Spirit. He had been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king over Israel. The Lord sent Samuel into Jesse's home, the father of David, to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. David was still a young man at that time. David's older brothers were first paraded in front of Samuel. They seemed the more obvious choice to Jesse. Samuel, too, was impressed. He especially thought that the oldest son, Eliab, would be the most obvious choice, as he was impressive in stature and appearance. But then the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Finally, the youngest son, David, is presented before Samuel. Then we read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. At that time, the Spirit of the Lord was upon David. After this, we read time and again 
that God's Spirit continued to be with him and that David felt God's presence. God blessed David in everything that he did. King Saul at one point had also been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. But we read in 1 Samuel 16 verse 14 that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. David was keenly aware of the removal of God's Spirit from King Saul. And that puts David's request concerning the removal of God's Holy Spirit, as we have it in Psalm 51, within a more specific context. David did not want to end up like Saul. He wanted to continue to receive God's Holy Spirit and to experience God's presence. It is clear that David fully understood that the Holy Spirit is not someone who is within your own control, but that he is a gracious gift of God, else he would not petition God not to take his spirit away from him. The Holy Spirit belongs to God. Only he can give it to you, and therefore, only he can take it away. David knew that the gift of the Holy Spirit was a gracious gift of God. In other words, you receive God's Spirit not because you deserve it or because you have anything to offer him, but only because of God's free grace. But what does it mean that God gives you his Holy Spirit? For David, it meant especially that he had received God's Holy Spirit when he was anointed as king. The Holy Spirit equipped him for his task. The Holy Spirit guided him as he ruled God's people. He guided David as he prophesied. For David could speak God's word as recorded in the Psalms and elsewhere. It is clear that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was especially operative in the prophets. Indeed, God's Spirit was at that time more restricted to certain office bearers, such as David and such as Moses before him and the 70 elders. But don't think that the Holy Spirit was not evident also amongst the people of Israel. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 63, verse 11. There we read that God's people ask, Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among us? The Old Testament believer understood that God had given his Holy Spirit to all of them. In the New Testament, both the doctrine about the Lord Jesus Christ and that of the Holy Spirit was more clearly revealed. In Genesis, we read about the seed of the woman who would crush Satan. At that time, the Old Testament believers did not know who the seed of the woman would be. But as God's Old Testament people came nearer to the great events of the birth of the Son of God, they slowly but surely got a clearer picture of him. Later on, the Lord God introduced the sacrifices which pointed to the blood of the Lamb. Isaiah prophesied of the coming Messiah, what he would do and how he would accomplish it. We are even told where he would be born, namely in the town of Bethlehem. In the book of Daniel, the Messiah is also identified as the Son of Man. Especially in Isaiah 53, you see the kind of person that he will be. For there he is introduced as the suffering servant. And so, as time goes on, there is a clearer picture of who the Messiah is and what he will do. 
The Holy Spirit is also more fully revealed as the history of Revelation unfolds. In the very beginning of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is introduced. There we read in Genesis 1 verse 2 that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Who is that Spirit? A clearer picture begins to unfold. The Spirit belongs to God. He is God even. For God says further in that same chapter, let us make man in our image. He uses the plural. Not only was the Son included as the agent of creation, so was the Spirit. The Father, the Son, and His Spirit belong together. Already we see the work of the Holy Spirit in creation. When it says in Genesis that the Spirit was hovering over creation, we are reminded of a bird that provides for and protects its young. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 11, we are given a clear picture as to what that means. There God is pictured as a bird who guided his nation Israel, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. That is also how the Holy Spirit looks after God's creation, and especially his children. The fact that God's Holy Spirit hovers over all of creation means that his Holy Spirit is always there. You cannot escape him. David so beautifully expresses that in Psalm 139, where he asks the rhetorical question in verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? God's Holy Spirit is everywhere. He has always existed. He was always involved in his creation. God's Holy Spirit does not just guide individuals, but all of creation, every nation, and every people. Moses and Aaron understood this when they, in Numbers 16, verse 22, referred to the God of the spirits of all mankind. Without the Holy Spirit, this world cannot exist. The Holy Spirit is especially revealed after the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. At Pentecost, the Lord Jesus sends his Holy Spirit and pours him out upon all flesh. But don't think that Pentecost is only a New Testament phenomenon. No, the Holy Spirit has been active throughout creation. But the work of the Spirit becomes richer all the time and then comes most fully to the fore on the day of Pentecost. Whereas before God turned his face toward Israel, now he makes his presence known amongst all the nations. Therefore, we may not sin against him or ignore him. For God's Holy Spirit is precious. You cannot do without him. We come to the second point. When David asked not to have the Holy Spirit taken away from him, does that mean then that it is possible? Does that mean that God can remove his Holy Spirit? As we saw, God's Spirit is everywhere present. You cannot escape God's Spirit. But it is possible to sin against the Holy Spirit and to ignore him, to pretend that he is not there. And then, in that sense, you do lose him. The majority of mankind does not acknowledge the Holy Spirit. They do not realize that the Holy Spirit of God sustains the universe. 
They do not think that they need him. They think that they are in control of creation. The modern-day environmentalists are typical of that way of thinking. They are concerned about this earth and the impact that mankind has on it. They believe that the earth is very fragile and that they therefore must control its destiny. They believe that if they do not actively involve themselves in the management of the resources of the earth, then that then it is going to perish. It is true that we have to be careful with God's creation. We must be good stewards. We may not pollute the earth, but it is not true that we can control the destiny of the earth. God the Holy Spirit is always in control. He is the one who creates and recreates. He is the one who looks after it and keeps everything in perfect balance. The earth is not as fragile as we think. At the end of this age, the Holy Spirit will be the one who will totally renew this world. The majority of the world does not recognize the Spirit of God. They do so at their own peril. If they do not want the Spirit of God, then God will not give him to them either. And as we saw, without God's Spirit, you cannot live. David recognized that. He recognized that God's Holy Spirit is a gift from God that you cannot do without. He not only realized that he was weak in heart and spirit, but also that he was totally corrupt and incapable of doing anything without God. When he sinned his horrible sin with Bathsheba, he did so only because he ignored the Spirit of God. He did not reckon with God's Spirit, who gives life to everything and everyone. He took things into his own hands. He wanted to be in control of his own destiny. He wanted to seek pleasure according to the desires of his flesh and not according to the desire of God, the Holy Spirit. He pretended that God did not exist. He did the same thing that the world does. He went his own way. But then, through Nathan the prophet, he came to repentance. Nathan reminded David that God is in control, that without, God, without God's Holy Spirit, he would perish. That is why David cried out to God to create in him a new heart. He wanted to give the reins back to God. He wanted God to be in control of his destiny again. In Psalm 51, David recognized that he is God's creation. Through his spirit, he breathed life into him. It is all God's doing. He has no strength and no ability of his own. He is totally dependent on God, not only for his physical life, but also for his spiritual life, and most importantly, for his eternal life. But do you really think that David had to be afraid that God would leave him, that he would take his Holy Spirit totally away from him? David was God's anointed, he was a child of God. Ultimately, David did not have to worry about the fact that he had sinned the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. For once you have the Holy Spirit of God, you cannot lose it. It is yours for eternity. We come to the third point. It says in 1 Peter 1 verse 23, For you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And in 1 John 3 verse 9 we read, No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. When you have the seed of God within you, then you cannot perish. Why then is David afraid that God will take his Holy Spirit from him? He is afraid because of the enormous sin weighing down on him. Because of his sin, he does not feel God's presence any longer. But God has not abandoned him. It is impossible for a child of God to entirely suppress God's Holy Spirit. That is true for all of us. There may be those among us who think that they have sinned too much, that they are not worthy of God's presence, that they are not worthy of salvation. But God never takes his Holy Spirit away from his children. We all grieve the Holy Spirit in many ways. We do it every day. We fall short of God's glory. We are miserable creatures. But listen to what it says in Ephesians 4 verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of God for the day of redemption. That is a fact that no one, not even the devil, can take away from you. You do not have to doubt your salvation. You do not have to think that you have sinned the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. I know that leaves a great big question still in your mind. What about those passages that we read together in Hebrews and in Matthew? What about King Saul? Did God not take his Holy Spirit away from him? For it says in 1 Samuel 16 verse 14 that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. What then is the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit? Brothers and sisters, when we speak about the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit, We should be careful to distinguish between election and covenant. First, let's look at the passage in Hebrews 6. There we read that those who have once been enlightened, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God, that if they fall away, they cannot be brought back to repentance. But you have to understand that within the context that it is written. The book of Hebrews is all about the new covenant established by the great high priest, Jesus Christ. It is covenantal language. Here the author is not speaking about our election. God's elect cannot and will not perish. But here God is speaking about his covenant ways. For not all who belong to God's covenant will be saved. Not all the children that receive the sign and seal of the covenant and are brought up in the church will be saved. That is what he is speaking about here in this passage. He is speaking about the nation Israel, who had been included as God's covenant children. Many of the Israelites rejected God's covenant. They knew what it was all about, but it never touched their hearts. They never allowed God's Holy Spirit in their hearts. They totally hardened their hearts against God. They never had the Holy Spirit to begin with. They always resisted the Spirit of God. If you continue to resist the Spirit throughout your life, then in the end there is no chance of salvation for you. 
then there is no longer a chance for repentance. Not all who are called God's children will be God's children into eternity. There are those who fall away. We see that more often in the Bible. Think about Judas, for example. He was one of the twelve disciples. He had received the sign and the seal of the covenant when he was circumcised. He had seen all the miracles of the Lord Jesus. He was with the Lord Jesus throughout his ministry. He heard his words, and yet he totally rejected the Lord Jesus. He had completely hardened himself against the Spirit of God. And so God confirmed him in his unbelief. Judas never had the Spirit of God to begin with, and so he perishes as a child of the devil. What about King Saul? Indeed, it says that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. But it does not say there that the Spirit of the Lord was removed from him forever. At that moment, the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. It doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that King Saul was condemned to hell. It is very possible that he was, but it is also possible that he wasn't. We don't know if he was one of God's elect. God knows. Where does that leave us? First of all, we are left with a warning. God tells us these things in his word because of his great love. He wants to remind us of the great gift of his Holy Spirit and that we must not reject him. You must not harden yourself in your sin. If David had continued to leave his sin unconfessed and hardened himself in his sins, then David too would have perished. But through God's grace, that did not happen. God did not remove his spirit from him. There may be times in your life as well when you are brought very low. There may be times when there are certain sins that you that you just will not break with. At that point, you don't feel God's presence anymore. But that doesn't mean that God's Holy Spirit is not there. He is present and he will restore you because you are his child. You may also have that same comfort about your loved ones, about those who have gone astray. It may well be that God has not yet left them, even though they no longer worship with you. That is why you have to pray about them and think about ways of bringing them back into God's graces. You do not give up on them. You warn them and remind them of the need of the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, we do not know who has totally rejected God's Spirit. Only God knows. We have to come with the gospel to our children, to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, to those who have strayed. God is a just judge. He continues to call you to repentance. But he also warns you, as he does in Hebrews, that you cannot continue to reject him and think that you will be saved and that he will continue to sustain you. There comes a point of no return. But now what about the other passage in Matthew 12? What does the Lord Jesus mean when he says in Matthew 12, verse 31, that the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven? In order to understand that passage, you again have to look at the context. The Lord Jesus performed many miracles among the Israelites. We read in verse 15 that he healed all their sick, and in verse 22, that he healed a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. These are great miracles, 
the people stood in awe of him. They were astonished, and they asked whether or not he could indeed be the son of David, prophesied about in the Old Testament. It is understandable that they make that statement, for the work that he was doing was messianic. Only God could perform such miracles. These were not the works of an ordinary man. The people knew it. Now the Pharisees realized that this was a pivotal moment for them. They did not want the Lord Jesus to have the influence that he had. They felt the crowd slipping away from them. They had to do or say something in order to discredit Jesus. They could not have the people believe that God was among them. So they said something absolutely outrageous and blasphemous. Because they did not want to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, they had to discredit him in the only way they knew how. They equated him with the devil himself. They said to the people, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. That is the last defense that they could come up with. For if it is not God who is doing this, then it must be the devil who is doing it. That was their sin against the Holy Spirit. Against all logic and reason, they wanted the people to believe that Jesus was not sent by God, but that he is a devil himself. Then the Lord Jesus masterfully unmasks their hypocrisy and great unbelief. He asked, how is it possible for Satan to drive out Satan? If that is the case, then he is divided against himself. Satan cannot be out to destroy Satan. That absolutely makes no sense. Satan is not out to defeat and destroy himself. He further points out that only the Spirit of God can drive out demons. No one else can. Only the Holy Spirit has that kind of power. Therefore, the only logical conclusion you can come to is that the Lord Jesus himself is full of the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees were out to destroy the work of God. They wanted to block the message of salvation. They did so deliberately and with hardened hearts. They did so with a great hatred against the Son of God. It is in this way that they sinned the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. They did not sin against him because of ignorance, but because of deliberate disobedience. They had totally hardened their hearts. Now you can also understand why the Lord Jesus says in verse 32 that anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but that anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. For he realizes that people, in searching to understand who the Son of God is, what his work is, and how he saves people, need to be instructed. People are slow in their understanding. They have in front of them a man from Nazareth whose father was a mere carpenter. They had to come to grips with the fact that he is indeed the Son of God. In their search for the truth and in their ignorance, they may say or do things against the Son of God that are wrong. Think, for example, of the Apostle Paul. Out of his ignorance and wrong zeal, he sinned against the Son of God when he persecuted the church. But the Lord Jesus forgave him. He did not know what he was doing. Such a sin can be forgiven. But in this case, the Pharisees knew exactly what they were doing. It was not out of ignorance that they said these things. It was out of an unbridled hatred 
that they said them. Therefore, in the final analysis, they also sinned against the Son of God. For when it comes right down to it, when you send the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit, and you persist in that sin, then you also reject the Son of God. For the Spirit and the Son are one. Are you still worried about your salvation? Don't be. You're a sinner, yes. But as long as you continue to see God, he will not leave you. Even when at times you were brought very low, God will not abandon you. As long as you do not harden your heart against him, God will continue to carry you and to bless you. That is what he did to David, and that is what he will do to you. Seek God, and you will find him. Not that your fellowship with God depends on your efforts, for we are incapable. For as it says in John 6, verse 44, No one can come to the Lord Jesus Christ unless the Father who sent him draws him. As with David, we need God to create in us a new heart. Ultimately, it is all God's work, and to him be the glory. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.